Hey everyone, this is the final episode of the Yellow Papers where we'll be discussing Cool Air by H.P. Lovecraft. My name is Zach. And I'm Brianna. And let's get right into it. Cool Air by H.P. Lovecraft. You ask why I'm afraid of cold air. I am nauseated by the sensation of a nightly chill greasing at my skin. Listen to my story, and you may judge whether it is a suitable explanation for my fear. I moved to New York City on a bright afternoon in the spring of 1923, excited at the prospect of a low-paying job in a little magazine company. Because of my poor circumstances, I was required to live in, shall we say, a less-than-ideal boarding house situation? The four-story brownstone mansion, dating back to the early 1800s, was opulently decorated with a singularly musty atmosphere hanging about the place. The landlady, an unkempt Spanish woman named Herrero, was at least not very gossipy, and the other Spanish boarders were just as quiet. The first odd incident occurred about a month after moving in. An odd splatter appeared on the floor at my feet, and I became aware that I had been smelling the pungent odor of ammonia for some time. A drip of the substance had been trickling down the corner from the ceiling. Anxious to stop it, I ran downstairs to complain to Herrero. Ah, Dr. Munoz, she cried as she rushed upstairs. He has spilled his chemicals. He is too sick for the doctor himself, sicker and sicker all the time, but he will not have any others for help. He is very queer in his sickness. All day he takes funny-smelling baths, and he cannot get very excited or warm. He does all his own housework. His little room is full of bottles and machines, and he does not work as a doctor. But he was great once. My father in Barcelona had heard of him, and only just now he fixed the arm of the plumber that got hurt all of a sudden. He never goes out, only to the roof, and my boy Esteban brings him food and laundry and medicines and chemicals. My god, the salamoniac that man uses to keep himself cool. I returned to my room quietly, and the ammonia stopped dripping as I cleaned up what spilled into my room. I heard Herrero stomping about upstairs, but Dr. Munoz I never heard myself, except for the clanging of machines in his room. I might never have met him in my time at the Brownstone if not for the heart attack that had seized me as I was writing in my room. Knowing the dangers of ignoring such an affliction, I crawled up the stairs to see the famed doctor the landlady had talked about. At my knock, a reply in good English answered and opened the door. I was greeted by a rush of cool air in strong contrast to the humid atmosphere of the June afternoon. I shivered as I glanced around the cluttered room, filled with the aforementioned chemical bottles and solutions. The figure before me was very short, but extremely well put together. His hair was well-trimmed, and his dark eyes were framed by a neat pair of spectacles. Despite his overall neatness, I was irrationally repelled by him, perhaps due to his grayish complexion or the chilly atmosphere that permeated the room and radiated from his body. But my repugnance was soon replaced with admiration, as he quickly and skillfully resolved my illness. Through his soft-spoken bedside manner, he reassured me through the procedure. His voice was odd, but soothing. It had a hollow, timberless quality that nevertheless rolled fluidly and softly from his mouth, describing his scientific experimentation to combat and overcome death from organ reanimation to battery-powered animals. In half-jest, he promised to teach me to live, or at least possess some kind of conscious existence, without a heart. On his part, his illness required a strict regimen of chill. Any raise in temperature could affect him fatally. His apartment was maintained at a stable 55 degrees Fahrenheit through a complex system of ammonia cooling. In a grateful days, I left his chilly cave in awe of the doctor's scientific gift. I paid him frequent calls over the summer, as he described his secret research and their ghastly results. 
He told me of a particular experiment with the old Dr. Torres of Valencia, who nursed him through a great illness some 18 years ago. No sooner had the elder doctor assisted Dr. Munoz, he had succumbed. Perhaps the strain of it had been too much. Dr. Munoz whispered vaguely that the methods of healing had been most extraordinary. However, as those weeks passed, I was also increasingly aware of the doctor's physical deterioration. His complexion had turned a bluish gray, and the little apartment became colder and colder, from a manageable 55 degrees to a freezing 34 to an unbearable 28. The tenants next door complained of the creeping frost, so I helped them fit heavy hangings to block out the chill. A morbid, frantic mood hung over the doctor as he bought more and more chemicals for his laboratory and took frequent and longer baths. He had the habit of writing long documents, which he carefully sealed in envelopes and entrusted to me to deliver, from a few letters to the East Indies to a particularly thick packet for a celebrated French physician now generally thought to be dead. On one warm September day, a repairman had come to fix his pipes. He had fled the room in a frenzied terror. Oddly enough, the man had been through the terrors of the Great War without ever having incurred such a fright so thorough. In the middle of October, the horrors of horrors came with stupefying suddenness. The pumps of the refrigerating unit had broken down in the middle of the night, so that in a few hours' time, the ammonia ceased to pump through the doctor's room. I had tried to amateurly repair the broken unit as the doctor lifelessly cursed at it. When I contacted the neighboring mechanic shop, they had told us nothing could be done until the morning, when we could order a new piston to replace the broken one. The doctor swelled in rage and fear before suddenly clasping at his eyes and dashing to the bathroom. He emerged after a while, groping about with bandages covering his face. The room began to grow warmer and warmer in the early morning. Dr. Munoz retired to the bathroom, commanding me to keep him supplied with all the ice I could obtain from the all-night drugstores and cafeterias. As I laid my diminishing returns at the door of his bathroom, he continued to splash about the tub, calling out in an ever weaker order, More! More! At daybreak, I asked a seedy-looking loafer to help with the ice while I obtained the piston. I ran violently about town, vainly telephoning various shops and jumping from subway to subway, until I finally found the pump around lunchtime. However, by the time I had found the pump and the two mechanics to help install it, black terror had preceded me. The house was in complete bedlam. A deep voice was intoning a prayer from the deep recesses of the house as the women were shrieking and banging about the place, and a deeply unpleasant odor was seeping from the doctor's door. The loafer I had hired, it seemed, had fled in mad-eyed terror not long after I had assigned him with his task, having taken a peek of curiosity at the doctor to whom he was delivering ice to. There was no sound behind the door, only a suspicious black goo pooling in front of the door. I covered my nose with a handkerchief as I explored the room. The goo had left a slimy trail from the open bathroom door to a desk, where a terrible little pool had accumulated next to a slip of paper with an awful pencil scribble. The page was smeared with a mixture of graphite and that terrible goo, leaving an especially hideous smell. Then the trail led to the couch and ended unutterably. What was, or had been on the couch, I cannot and dare not say here. But this is what I spied on that little scrap before I burned the paper to a crisp. Whether I believe it, I cannot honestly say. All I do know is that I do hate the smell of ammonia and the shiver of cold air. The end, ran the noisome scroll, is here. No more ice. The man looked and ran away. Warmer every minute, and the tissue can't last. I fancy you know what I say about the will and the nerves and the preserved body after the organs ceased to work. It was good in theory, but it couldn't be kept up indefinitely. There was a gradual deterioration I had not foreseen. Dr. Torres knew, but the shock killed him. He couldn't stand what he had to do. He had to get me in a strange, dark place when he minded my letter and nursed me back. And the organs never would work again. It had to be done my way, 
artificial preservation. For you see, I had died that time 18 years ago. So H.P. Lovecraft is pretty well known for like being um, kind of like the founder of like the horror genre. Well, not exactly the founder, but you know, like one of the large figures within the horror genre, um, particularly of like cosmic horror. Um, I mean, his most well-known work and most well-known characters, like the Call of Cthulhu, right? Uh, which is kind of like about the existentialism and pessimism of like the world, I guess. Um, but this story in particular wasn't particular. It wasn't like uh, inspired by that kind of genre. It's a little bit more. It's still a little bit sciency though. I mean, it's involving like kind of the preservation of uh, dead bodies and that kind of thing. Something I found actually really interesting was, like, uh, the inspiration behind it. So, uh, Lovecraft, for pretty much all of his life, was, like, pretty sickly and kind of, like, isolated as a child. Like, his family went through a lot of, like, financial hardship and health issues. And, like, he was always just kind of, like, trapped in his room in New England. And because of that, he had some interesting views. (laughs) Yeah. We can get into later. But um, because of that, like, it was he generally just was like very sickly and poor and kind of angry the whole time so this uh particular story and there, i think there are two others were all written during his time in uh new york yeah. where he was like kind of afraid of his immigrant uh neighbors and was just like really v- miserable in that area and of course he was kind of sick so he really hated the cold so i guess the narrator could be like a reflection of him <laughs> It's ironic that he doesn't like immigrants, but he decided to go to New York. I mean, yeah. <laughs> a little bit of a contradiction. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember exactly, but I feel like it might have had something to do with, like, his wife or something. I think his wife was, like, Jewish or something. There's, like, this whole section about, like, his views changing. But we can, like, talk about that a little bit later. I wrote down some notes a little bit later. Yeah, so we can get into the literary devices now of the story. So I think with a lot of works from this specific era, a lot of works are written in the first person. It kind of gives that intimate storytelling feel. feel. Mm-hmm. Um, it reminds me a little bit of Frankenstein and that mm-hmm. Frankenstein was also a story that was written like in, in the past tense in the first person as if it's like, they're, you know, you're sitting in front of the fireplace and you're just talking to this person. They're like, let me tell you a story and they just mm-hmm. get right into it. Oh yeah, the, I think like that whole kind of having it being told in the past tense also like really helps with like the horror genre in general right because like the horror usually comes from like discovering information slowly or like the characters know inf- or the characters don't know information that like you know right so like by telling it in like this past tense kind of way you're able to like more slowly reveal information whereas like present or future tense i mean i guess technically they also work yeah but like there's like a horror in like the person already knowing something that you don't know yeah it's, it also is like, how did we get here? Because in the very beginning, like the first line is, he, he's talking about how people ask him why he doesn't like cool air. And he's like, well, let me explain. Uh, mm-hmm. Which kind of like adds to the suspense of the story. I feel like it was written in the present tense and we just jumped straight into the main character. Um, I, I feel like that there wouldn't be as much of that suspenseful tone because immediately from the get-go, what we want to know is why is he afraid of cool air? And as, um, and I, in the moment where we do read the words cool air later on in the story, when he's walking into the doctor's room, that's when we know, mm-hmm. oh yeah, 
things are about to go down. Yeah, I mean, otherwise it'd be a pretty like generic like New York story, right? Like I was going to New York to be a part of a publishing company. Yeah. To work really hard, and I hate all my neighbors. Yeah, one of the very interesting parts of this story is how the author weaves in all these different types of imagery. Not just mm-hmm. visual imagery through the description of like the the house on West Fourteenth Street and its mm-hmm. depressive mustiness. I found mm-hmm. that a little bit funny, but also with like the, the itself, cool air is like a form of tactile imagery. It's something that you can feel, and I think that especially works with the horror genre. You need to have that like tactile imagery, whether the narrator is feeling something slimy crawl up on their shoulders or they're feeling cool air. It kind of adds to that, like you're in the moment, you can feel it, just like you can feel something creeping up on you. Mm-hmm. I think, like, also, like any other type of imagery, I feel like you could also like mistaken, like you could like think yeah. you smell one thing or you think you could see something, but like feeling it, there's not really a, a mistaken feeling, or else like if it is yeah. like an imaginary feeling, you can still like there's like a visceralness yeah. to it. Mm-hmm. We all know what cool air feels like, which is why <laughs> it's like. <laughs> You know, it's like why? Why would the narrator be afraid of something so, such a universal experience for people to have been in the cold at one point? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Even though it's like basically like summer now, right? It's like April, mid-April. But I still like at, when we were like listening to the story, I could just feel that like air conditioning like circulating. Yeah. Yeah. And so one of the other things I want to talk about is like the 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 landlady and how like the immigrants within this story are all speaking in like low diction and like the their dialogue is written phonetically to emphasize how they're foreign i think there's definitely like an element of xenophobia here with how he portrays like his his spanish neighbors and how they're all yeah i mean okay when i was like uh i i put on an audiobook to like listen to the this particular story and um like, the way the the guy was reading it out loud, I mean, it was pretty obvious there was, like, an accent or whatever, and it kind of, like, sounded okay, but, like, looking at the text, yeah. it's just, like, terrible. Oh, my God. Yeah. I hate it so much. It's exactly like that, Same. um, whatchamacallit, Hagrid from Harry Potter. Like, he's written out with, like, all these, like, apostrophes and, like, way too many vowels. I hate when authors do that. <laughs> I know. Like, like, you can just slip in, like, she spoke with an accent or whatever. But I feel like writing it out phonetically is, like, especially degrading. Because it almost, yeah. like, presents them as a little bit of, like, a child. Like, they don't have, like, the, you know, like, they're not, like, a an adult who can, like, write out their words completely. Like, they're, they themselves, they can't form complete words. Yeah, it's really... It's a little bit dehumanizing. Yeah. And I like from how, from the get-go, you can see, like, how... H.P. Lovecraft and other horror, classic horror authors, like, set up these different tropes, like, with this house, um, you know, the depressive mustiness of it all, and what what I was, like, looking into is how houses are portrayed within the horror genre and the potential connotations that they carry, because usually what we associate houses with is something like, you know, like, home, warmth, family, positive things generally, but it's like in the horror genre, they subvert that. And I think that that is a very intentional within all of these works is that like you want to take this place where you feel safe and then make it so that the audience doesn't feel safe reading it through this perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting to see where these tropes originate. I think it's also interesting, like, even though, like, a haunted house is, like, a very common trope to, like, the point where, like, when someone says it was a spooky, scary haunted house, like, no one, like, bats an eye at it, but, like, it's still able to, like, inspire that kind of, like, just a little bit of those, like, creepy crawlies, even though 
It's yeah, because like we don't want to imagine a house in a negative way. Because like we all have like that fear of mm-hmm. like what if the place that you call home is suddenly not safe anymore, or like what if there isn't a safe place to go to. Which is why I think there's just so many horror movies where it's like the couple moves into a new house and suddenly it's like, where else are they supposed to go, you know? Yeah, that's one of the things, it's like, it feels like a claustrophobic feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess you could also kind of consider this one kind of like a play on that. Like the guy, the guy news, moves into a new city and he meets this interesting yeah. neighbor and the interesting neighbor. Yeah, <laughs> there's a, I, I love the twist, Leanne, yeah, which you can get into in a minute and, mm-hmm. uh, and there's the other types of imagery, as I was talking about earlier, like the auditory and olfactory imagery. So auditory mm-hmm. imagery is like imagery you hear um, for our audience who might not be unfamiliar, who aren't in AP literature and didn't have to memorize these terms for our upcoming <laughs> oh terms goodness. test. And then there's also, um, you know, the the olfactory imagery or like the smell, like he smells pneumonia or ammonia, not pneumonia. Mm-hmm. That's an important <laughs> distinction. Pneumonia is a disease. You cannot... Or, or possibly, I, I don't know, if pneumonia <laughs> carries a certain smell. <laughs> but auditory imagery, like he hears spattering. And mm-hmm. I think that's also very much a horror trope. You know, the you hear like the, the sound of like blood coming down or something like that. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. But like, this specifically, yeah, yeah. Kind of like there's that image of like what blood like dripping from the ceiling. But in, the, in this case, it's like ammonia. There was yeah. also like an interesting reference to like the Great War too, where like, think like some like repair guy like came in and he was like freaking out but like he they know like he used to be in the yeah mm-hmm. yeah that, that that part of it is like a little bit of like irony the the mm-hmm. situational irony of it all that he's been through war and yet somehow this house is more terrifying or that the doctor being in the presence of the doctor is more terrifying than that mm-hmm. yeah and it's more it's more th- even more than just like his his visual horror right i think the ammonia also like because wasn't that also like one of those like uh, chemical weapons that was used. Yeah. So it like connects it both, like it, it connects the whole like Great War experience into like such a innocuous thing like a neighbor. Yeah, and I think that this that part would especially resonate with his readers, like coming mm-hmm. out of the Great War, like they they know exactly what he's trying to convey with that, mm-hmm. and also with like the the smell of ammonia, like it causes like blindness, lung damage, and death if you're exposed to it. <laughs> Potentially. So, like, immediately, this is, like, alarming to the reader. Like, mm-hmm. something isn't right here. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, like, he... Um, and then, yeah, so then the narrator experiences a heart attack. Or he... Uh, and then he decides to... Which is a form of organic imagery. It's something that you can feel inside you. And then he decides to approach Dr. Munoz. I believe mm-hmm. that's how you would pronounce it. And yeah. then he's greeted with a rush of cool air. And it's like, roll credits. We just heard that <laughs> yeah. <laughs> phrase. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's also interesting how he has the heart attack like before the horror comes. Like, isn't that usually what happens like right after you experience yeah. the horror? He's like, yeah, I just had a heart attack. So let me go upstairs and check up on what this mysterious doctor is doing with all this ammonia. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, for some reason, like, I just kind of got glossed over i don't know i just like didn't register that he had a heart attack until i was like rereading a summary just yeah. to like, get the notes before this recording but like i'm like oh he had a heart attack okay. <laughs> a heart attack is a very casual thing in the early 20th century <laughs> yeah i guess and, and of course there's there's more xenophobia when he walks oh. into the room with uh dr munoz he compares him to like a moor which is mm-hmm. like this this outdated term it wasn't um it was used in 
The Merchant of Venice, which was a text that we read this year mm-hmm. in AP literature, and it's also in Othello, and it's like referring to like the the Muslims of North Africa who like went to like Spain or whatever. Um, so like by comparing like the the guy to like a Moor, it's almost like it's it's like that that it adds to like the foreigner or aspect of it. It, it mm-hmm. kind of like is meant to intentionally like exaggerate like the the unknown about this guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess through yeah, the xenophobia. And also, um, who's he? What's it? Lovecraft was also like low key, not low key, high key, and like white supremacist. Like he, oh, um, <laughs> like he was like he believed very strongly like in the Anglo-Saxon race. So there's like different tiers to like being white. It's like this like yeah. backwards. So I think like also by emphasizing that like this Doctor Munoz is like Spanish, right? So emphasizing that he's a Moor, yeah. not even like a white Spaniard, I think, also emphasizes that, like, complete exotic, yeah. like, otherness to him. Yeah, like, he's not only Spanish, he's yeah. a Moor. Like, <laughs> like, he's not even, he doesn't even look white, period. That's basically what he's trying to yeah. say. And, like, one of the main themes of the the text also comes up at this point. Like, he mm. when he experiences the cool, cold air on that hot day, the specific quotation is the abnormal always excites aversion, distrust, and fear. And I guess the abnormal also refers to like with his immigrant neighbors. Mm-hmm. That that's also part of like what Lovecraft is trying to convey. But also with like the idea that um, there's something not quite right with Doctor Munoz. Um, mm-hmm. Mun- I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It would be embarrassing if I got that wrong. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's correct. The Enya is like pronounced like that. Munoz, but, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's also interesting how like technically like i don't know like okay it's kind of implied that like the 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 narrator is like a a white anglo-saxon but like he is technically yeah. in, like the subservient position in like fetching ice for dr munoz and like being the yeah. good friend whereas dr munoz is like the a very high-minded um like intellectually superior but yet yeah. in the end I guess by, like, killing him off, too. It's kind of, like, further othering him, like... Kind of like you were saying, it, like, draws back to Frankenstein in terms of, like, oh, do not try and tempt nature. And, like, furthermore, do make sure, like... I guess, like, these foreigners don't try and... Like, these are the guys who are going to try. Yeah. They're going to try and deceive you. Or, like, Mm -hmm. try and, you know, force you to, like, I don't know, do whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of like the 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 fear of like the dynamic shifting or the racial mm-hmm. dynamic shifting, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. And, and like with all the texts we've read so far, what I tend to notice with a lot of these classic texts is that it seems like a lot of the authors have like a firm grasp of their poetic devices as well. Mm-hmm. Just one yeah. of the things. There's like alliteration. Um, as Doctor Munoz's condition deteriorates, his muscular motions were less perfectly coordinated. And, you know, there's also consonants with the less resilience with the S sound, which I remember Mr. Lucia was saying when there's like an S sound, it's meant to be more suspenseful because it reminds mm-hmm. us of like the hissing of snakes or like yeah. a warning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were saying, uh, or not they were saying, one of like um, Lovecraft's biggest influences was definitely like Poe. And I think it's interesting yeah. how even though, um, who is it? The last guy they were reading, Monkey Paw, Monkey's Paw, I think it was Jacob, yeah. right? Yeah, even though they come from around the same, roughly the same per- time period, like 1920s-ish, mm-hmm. you can definitely see a little bit more of, like, the, the classic horror within um, uh, Lovecraft, I think. Yeah. 
And then there's more about uh, the the othering of Dr. Munoz. There, there, there's a lot of it within the specific text, but like he... Oh, and there's also a little bit of... Um, there, there's this one part where he compares um, the vault or the, the, his, the smell of Dr. Munoz's room to the vault of a sepulchred pharaoh, mm-hmm. which is a little bit of, uh, what's it called, foreshadowing, and that mm-hmm. he's literally a mummy <laughs> alive. And then also it's meant to be like, you know, it, it reflects like European fascination with like Africa and that mm-hmm. it is the same like othering kind of thing. Um, yeah, and like Dr. Munoz is supposed to be like kind of like Moorish, right? So it further connects yeah. him to like Northern, Af- North Northern Africa, Africa yeah. and like the exoticness of that. And then, yeah, as the this text progresses, it gets more and more anxious. It keeps compounding. Dr. Munoz speaks incessantly of death. <laughs> and that there's an increasingly unexplained atmosphere of panic that seemed to rise about his apartment. That's a direct quotation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, we're getting closer and closer to the climax. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Interestingly, like, for some reason, even though I could really, like, feel the rising panic, like, within, like, say, like, yeah. yellow wallpaper or, like... Uh, what was the other one? Mask of Red Death? For some reason, like, I feel like this right... Well, one of the things, like, other people were noting on different forums is, like, this particular text yeah. is very, like, direct and, like, almost detached. So even though there's, like, a sense of, like, yeah. rising panic, it's not as visceral as, like, the first yeah. two that we were reading. Detached tone was one of the words that was... Spe- and part of it could just be, like, the, the, the way that it's written in comparison to, like, the yellow wallpaper. Mm-hmm. Um... Well, the yellow wallpaper was also written in first person past tense, but I think it was mm-hmm. also like more broken up. Whereas there's more of like a streamlined narrative. The yellow wallpaper had those like breaks in between mm-hmm. each different section. So like mm-hmm. as we get closer and closer to the end, like we know, you know, there's like that that end point um, that kind of like reminds the reader that they're like, you know, it's it's coming closer and closer. Whereas with this, it just continues streamlined. Like it's just sometimes just blocks of text. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's less. Um, I think that's one of the interesting things about like modern literature is that I think we see a lot more that authors tend to experiment with like the actual form of the text with mm-hmm. like making those like very short senses and mm-hmm. like making it like varying it up a little bit and then also having those small paragraphs because they know that the small paragraphs like immediately our mind goes to oh something's important here also because mainly maybe we just became bad readers and we have to like look at something where it's like really pronounced for us to notice that oh yeah this is important. I mean, I don't think it's, like, necessarily that we're just, like, bad, or, like, we we were better readers before. I think it's just, I mean, like, one thing that they always, like, constantly yeah. emphasize in design is that, like, you always want shorter b- blocks of text, and people can read it more, like, more yeah. quickly and understand the information more quickly. So, like, by playing around with, like, the different forms of the text, you're really able to... Yeah emphasize like the kind of panic as opposed to like having a large block of text even though it may be shorter sentences yeah. like oh no i see this and this and this if it's like one block of text everyone's gonna gloss over it and no one's gonna feel that like visceralness you can see with like having breaks in between yeah. everything and feeling the space in between and there's a little bit of symbolism here as well so mm-hmm. like the the narrator is asked to like burn dr Munoz's letters and like immediately that just like clicked like letters themselves like i remember when we were talking about pride and prejudice mm-hmm. in ap literature it's like how people like communicate with one another is how they express themselves and so like the letters here are like symbolic of the unfinished business that people leave behind when they pass away mm-hmm. and then you know dr Mignot's illness itself is like a symbol of what people innately fear the unknown mm-hmm. we aren't actually clued in as to what his illness is until we realize it's not actually an illness at all mm-hmm. <laughs> and that he's been dead all along 
I think it's also interesting how, like, they have that juxta- the constant juxtaposition because, like, um, I think the narrator, like, just mentions, like, briefly here and there that it's, like, a warm summer in that where yeah. he meets Dr. Munoz and he's, like, burning these letters, whereas, like, Dr. Munoz yeah. continually gets colder and colder and colder. So, yeah. Like, yeah, the juxtaposition of temperatures, I think, also... Weren't they talking about that also, like, a little bit in the beginning? How yeah, like, they were, like, about, like, the cool air on a, like, a, it was, like, a on a hot summer afternoon. Or, like, there's that imme- there that juxtaposition was set up pretty early on. There's, like, contrast between the hot and the cold. Mm-hmm. And, like, or, like, something about, like, fear of, like, the abnormal. So, like, yeah, yeah, aversion hot, to the cool. abnormal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I know that we were talking about earlier about, like, the, the potential, like, the, the implications of him being, like, a servant to Dr. Mignot's and whether that's meant to represent, like, the, the enslaved dynamic. Um, mm-hmm. And there's also, like, it could also be an allusion to, like, the Christ-like figure, which is something that um, we tend to emphasize a lot in um, in our analysis of literature. Yeah. So this could potentially be a stretch, but like the way that he's like very much, the narrator is very much like making all these sacrifices for Dr. Munoz. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, I, I guess you can connect it even further with like Jesus coming back from the dead and you have Dr. Munoz who is like literally dead. So... Um, I don't know. I feel like that's kind of it's a little stretch. bit of a rage. I feel like you'd need a little bit more imagery to back it up. I mean, he yeah. has like Christ-like, like qualities, qualities, but it doesn't necessarily yeah. make him a figure. Yeah, but there, there's um, yeah, even more so. Like even at the the very end, there's even more of the poetic devices, like we were talking mm-hmm. about earlier, mm-hmm. <laughs> hither and thither. The feminine rhymes and like layer the alliteration with the subway and service car and suitable supply house and like mm-hmm. the the text almost becomes more poetic as we come closer to the end and as it becomes more panicky mm-hmm. so like as the rest as like the narrator confronts like this horror that's going on the rest mm-hmm. of the world kind of maintains the same routine reflected in the use of like the alliteration and the rhyme schemes you know mm-hmm. like even after the climax the narrator takes note of the clatter of cars and the clamorous trucks from the crowded 14th street there's the cut 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 sound Mm-hmm. further emphasizing the alliteration yeah i think it's just because like uh i think as we've mentioned before like kind of poetry always has that more visceral feeling than the po- prose yeah and, like, that's why like classic writers rely so heavily on it it's that you're able to properly convey like the horror that you're trying to inspire yeah and then we finally come to the ending dr Mignot is actually realized to be a corpse who managed to keep himself alive and mm-hmm. so I thought, like, compared to the, the last story we read, the, the monkey's paw, I think there's more of a satisfying resolution because mm-hmm. we actually mm-hmm. get to the root of the horror, whereas the monkey's paw is a little bit more open-ended, like, what's going to happen next? Whereas here, it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I don't know. When you put it that way, I feel like, oh, maybe, like, Lovecraft was, like, maybe a little bit too obvious. But at the same oh, yeah, time, ma- like, maybe it was a direct, like you were saying earlier about those forums. Yeah, but, like, also at the same time, like... I don't know, getting to the bottom of it is also, like, just really, really satisfying. I think I mentioned yeah. it in both our Haunted House and our Monkey's Paws episode. I really hated how, like, uh, floaty, I guess, those endings yeah. were. And, like, I guess that technically makes, like, better horror or whatever because you still leave your readers in a sense of unease. But at the same yeah. time, like, this was also really good. I just wanted to know, yes, it was the Red Death that killed them. Yes, it was, like, Dr. Yeah. Munoz was dead the whole time. Yeah, I also like it just because, like, I don't know, it, it leaves it more on, like, um, whereas with the other stories, I'm just, you know, I, I'm able to, like, return to it more. 
I also don't think I'd return to this story as much just because it did wrap up finally. I don't think there's mm-hmm. like no, not as much new insight that I could come up with it. Mm-hmm. But I also do enjoy how like with like short stories, I do enjoy when short stories wrap up things just because it's very difficult for authors to wrap up things. And I was <laughs> getting worried near the end there that like they weren't going to wrap up things and we n- we're never going to know. And then it's like up until like the very last sentence, that's when he decides to make the reveal. Mm-hmm. So it's like gives that final punch. Yeah, I think. Yeah, that's one of the good things about reading short stories, yeah. too, is that like uh, even if you can't like return back to them, it's still like you still get the enjoyable experience of like reading a novel, but like within like a yeah. shorter amount of time. So now we can get into the questions for discussion. So mm-hmm. as I was emphasizing a lot about the different types of imagery. So mm-hmm. which parts of Cool Air with all its different types of imagery, including visual, olfactory, tactile, auditory, which of those resonated with you the most as you were reading it? I mean, to be perfectly honest, I think it was just like that contrast in like temperature. So and then like yeah. the dripping and like even like the ice that was like melting through or like the slime yeah. that was like crawling everywhere. It's just that very visceral, like it's you the can tact- feel yeah, it. Yeah, the tactile yeah. imagery. Yeah, I think that tends like, to be the most powerful. Because mm-hmm, like, I mean, exa- like I was mentioning before, no matter how, how much you see or how much you like smell, it doesn't resonate the same way that you can like feel something in like your hand. Like if you can yeah. manipulate it or if you can... Uh, yeah, I guess, yeah, the, just the manipulation, being able to, like, control it, but still not yeah. control it, I guess. I don't know. This is a really weird way of explaining it. Like, <laughs> there's, like, an element of, like, control and also, like, an element of, like, not you being don't. able to grasp yeah. it. So after reading all these five texts over the course of this podcast, do you think that you've learned more about the horror genre? I would certainly say that I have in terms of, like, contrasting it between the classics versus, like, the modern which mm-hmm. I've, I've had more experience with the modern. I'm a big fan of mm-hmm. horror movies. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting to see the different tropes and how they play out in these classic stories. Mm-hmm. I, uh, to be p- perfectly like honest, I haven't really dove into like uh, horror stories that much. I'm not a big fan of like horror. But I've always been like a pretty big fan of like uh, very classic stories. Like I always yeah. read like Sherlock Holmes. Uh, in like eighth grade, we did this like whole unit on like Dickinson and Poe. And it was just, like, yeah. a really nice exploration of, like, all the different types of, like, writing. I feel like you can better yeah. understand writing just because classic horror does, like, is able to straddle that uh, balance between, like, poetry and prose yeah. in, like, a really interesting way. And also because, like, it, it is more engaging than other types of classic short stories, like romantic ones, just because there's, there's the suspense. So I think mm-hmm. that, like, horror stories are, like, a great in- introduction for someone who's interested in, like, reading from classic works. Like, especially mm-hmm. Edgar Allan Poe. And, because, like, immediately you're able to, like, understand, or not, I wouldn't say, like, you immediately understand these stories, but I think that they tend to be more thematically straightforward than mm-hmm. some of the other texts. Um which tend to be a little bit more complex. And especially like with the horror genre, it's usually that there's that very, they're usually most of the themes tend to be about, you know, the author is warning the audience about something like Mm -hmm. don't mess with nature or, you know, it's human nature to fear the unfamiliar as with this text. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, like you were touching upon also like romantic short stories or any other types of short stories, I think you can fall into the pitfalls of using tropes too many times. I think what's really interesting about horror is that you 
can obviously employ a bunch of tropes, but what truly makes, like, yeah. a really good horror story is, like, that, uh, walking that fine line in between, like, innovating more and also, like, using enough familiar tropes that your audience can, like, yeah. grab themselves and knowing what's happening. So, out of the five texts, which was your favorite and why? And after you tell about yours, I'll go into mine. Okay, well, like I was mentioning before, to be perfectly honest, I was, like, really, I really, really, really loved the really classic horror stories. I think, yeah. uh, I feel like Cool Era was a really nice note to end on because it kind of crossed the balance yeah. between um, both the really classic ones we started out with and then the modern ones that we were kind of going into in their last two yeah. episodes. But to be perfectly honest, I just really like how... I don't know, the poeticness, I guess, of the first two, and, like, just how visceral that, like, mm-hmm. those poetic qualities made it. Like we were saying, also, the endings of the other two weren't particularly satisfying, but I think, overall, beyond just the 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 endings, I just felt like they weren't able yeah. to inspire that same intense emotion, I think. I would say, for me, I think my favorites, I, I'm, I would actually say, like, the opposite I would say, like, the instead of the, the first two, I would say, like, the last two, Cool Air and The Monkey's Paw. I'm more of, like, I tend to be less, like, inclined to, like, the works that tend to be a little bit more, um, you know, the, the stream of consciousness narratives with, like, the, the haunted house ones. But mm-hmm. I think with, like, these stories, I, li- I like ones that are more concrete types of horror than mm-hmm. the psychological horror. Which I think, you know, here it's, like, very clear. And same with the monkey's paw. There's, like, that supernatural element. Whereas, like, the yellow wallpaper, it's all going on in her head. And it's a little bit more confusing for me. So it's a little bit less entertaining and more introspective. So I would say in terms of, like, the entertain entertaining quality, the monkey's paw and cool air were the ones that, like, grasped me the most. Mm, I see. Yeah, I think I think we were focusing on two very different things. I think I'm... Uh, yeah. I don't know. I just really... I really like just feeling the story, no matter, like, just whatever whatever, like, larger themes they're trying to tell or whatever plot they're trying to tell doesn't really matter as long as, like, you just can, like, feel it. I think you're focusing a lot more on, like, the plot. I definitely agree, though. Like, the last two plots have been a lot more... Well, not necessarily a lot more interesting, but definitely a little bit more concrete than the first two. But I think we can both agree that, like, Haunted House was a little bit weird. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, it was definitely the outlier, I think, of the five texts that we did. Mm -hmm. I don't know... I don't, I don't know if I can get into stream of consciousness writing. Like, yeah. people always talk about, like, oh, Virginia Woolf was such a good writer, and Ulysses was such a, like, brilliant book. But, like, just reading, just Haunted House, which is, like, only a page. I was like, uh, I don't know if this is, like, my cup of tea. <laughs> yeah. So thank you to our audience for sticking with us until the very end. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. And if you want to check out our previous episodes, head over to Scott Scoop. And also, I just want to say, like, me and Brianna are both seniors. This is our final year of journalism. And it's one of the final things that we're doing for this class. So I just want to say that if you're a freshman listening to this, or I don't know if you even live in, you know, this country or this state or wherever you live or wherever you're from, um, if you have the opportunity to join your high school journalism program, look at all the fun things you can do. Like, we're having a conversation about short form horror stories like that's fantastic (laughs) yeah and i think it's also just a really good opportunity just whatever you do try and read a little bit i know it's always really hard to read um even i'm like just struggling through like my regular english class but like honestly just reading is reading especially just to like feel something i think is to grow Mm -hmm. read something to grow to feel something it's a really powerful experience to kind of 
transport you out of this like really so far it's been pretty mundane year i think it's been my life has been a lot more lively than i thought it probably could have been with yeah. like being able to access all this different type of media even just beyond tv shows beyond movies i think also literature has yeah. also really helped that's definitely tv movies and literature those are the three things that have gone me through this pandemic Mm-hmm. and will get me through it until I get my vaccine <laughs> and until next next this August or whenever college starts. Uh, mm-hmm. But otherwise, to our audience, have a wonderful rest of your day. This is Zach. And Brianna. And we're signing off. Bye, guys. Bye.